Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Mati Cohen. Today we're going to be discussing the Mabel, the flood. The flood that destroyed the world, leaving just Nach and his family. A lot of people ask many questions on this story. How it could have happened? Did it really happen? Did it really happen across the entire world? Was it just a local flood, maybe? And many of these questions are based on practical questions about the possibility of a worldwide flood, along with the possibility of Nayach saving the animals in a boat. So joining me today to shed some light on this uh, difficult matter is Avi. Avi, why don't you take us away? So this is a very common question uh, I've gotten from many people. Uh, when they, you know, you read through the Chumash and you see different stories that obviously are not natural. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing also that the Torah doesn't really say, hey, this is a miracle, it's going to be unnatural. It just lists stories. And some of them are clearly not natural. Some of them you have God telling the, uh, the you know, the person in the story, the hero, the story, the protagonist in the story to do something uh, and then a miracle occurs. And sometimes it's just saying an event and we know that it's not natural. And it's not, we know it's not natural because we have advanced scientific tools. Even sometimes, you know, anybody who's just been alive for five minutes would realize that this is not how life works. Um, so the Torah is filled with miracles. Now, some miracles are more miraculous, I guess, which is, you know, an interesting term. You know, once you're breaking nature, is it really so far stretched to break it twice or three times or a deeper break? Unclear. But some miracles are more miraculous, let's say. And therefore, people who read them have a harder time believing that it occurred. Okay, so that's very interesting. And and I want to start you off with the first question that came from this article. This article is titled The Impossible Voyage of Neuerzark. And it starts out with a with a fun question. So I, I wanted to start you off with this. So he basically asks, how did Nayak even build the Ark? And he, and he goes into the history of shipbuilding, which, you know, take it for what, what you want. And he says how building such a giant ship, which would become seaworthy and be able to withstand the the waters of the Mabel, would have been impossible at that time for somebody to build such a magnificent boat because the shipbuilding at that time was at most, you know, little uh, rafts or kayaks, canoes. So two things. First off, when they, anytime you see, they say the history of the time was such, and it's so far back in history, right? We're talking 4,000 years ago is roughly when the flood happened. Okay, what it means is, is they haven't found evidence of bigger boats. If they have one archaeological dig that finds evidence of a bigger boat, that whole premise gets shuffled out, and there's no repercussions for that being the premise for 100 years of intellectual history. It just becomes, well, we now know there are bigger boats. And guess what? If the Torah had said that it was a small boat, and somebody said, well, that was in line with the history, and then somebody found a big boat, that would immediately become a question on the Torah, because what do you mean? We found big boats now. So that's first of all. Second of all, even taking that premise, we have to deconstruct what we're doing here. We have to establish what our premises are before we engage in this conversation. So for example, people ask me a lot of times questions on the so-called inequality between men and women in the Torah, right? Or the inequity between men and women in the Torah. And I just asked them the following question. What's our starting premise? Is the starting premise the Torah is true and you want to know why there are these differences? Or maybe you want to say that you're claiming the Torah is true, but based on these differences, it's hard for me to believe 
that a true Tyra would have these differences? That's one question. But if the starting premise is that the Torah is not true, then why are you asking on the differences between men and women? Just say it's false and therefore it's false. That's the only thing that should matter. So, so to here, what is our starting premise when we're asking questions on the flood story? Is it that the assuming the Torah is true, I have a question? Or is it the Torah is not true and I have a question? If the Torah is not true, then there's no point of the questions because the Torah is already not true. So obviously you're saying, if the Torah is true, I have a question, and therefore maybe the Torah isn't true. So if that's what you're trying to do, then we have to evaluate the Torah's claims vis-a-vis -vis this question. Meaning, is this a question assuming the Torah's claims that it's making is true? Meaning, is this out of the ordinary of the world the Torah is describing if the Torah is able to be true independently of this story. Meaning we're not judging the veracity of the Torah off this story. Let's say we had an independent way to know the story may be true, the Torah may be true or maybe not true. And now we're asking questions from the story to weaken that other claim. But if the other claim is that the Torah is making supernatural claims about the world, then asking it supernatural is not really a question because then the question just becomes, is it true that the, what the Torah says, that there are supernatural things that occur? Right. So it's a very interesting point. I like to bring the analogy that if somebody were trying to disprove the Harry Potter universe, right, the question of, well, magic seems ridiculous. You know, we don't have magic in the world. Well, that, that's already assuming that there is no Harry Potter universe. A question would have to be, if there was magic in the world and the Harry Potter universe was true, then what is the problem with my perception of the reality? In other words, I can ask something like, well, if it was true, why have I not seen it? Correct. Or if it is true, um, why are there not more noticeable effects of it? Correct. It wouldn't be a good question to say, um, if the Harry Potter universe is true, then don't we know that waving wands doesn't do anything? No, not if the Harry Potter story is true. Then if you're a wizard, waving a wand does something. Right. Okay, so how does that how does that help us with this question? So the question again is, how did Nayak build such a magnificent Tevo, such a magnificent ark? Well, okay, so let's talk about what the purpose of the flood was. The purpose of the flood was God was upset that mankind had sinned, and he wanted to restart the world. And he wanted to restart it with the only righteous man in the generation. And for whatever reason, God picked to bring a flood. Now, it's not like random. If you study Torah, there's many deep reasons that can be discussed regarding why the world was destroyed specifically through a flood and why it wasn't actually destroyed, but just restarted through a flood. But assuming that's the premise, that God was upset with the way mankind had turned out, and even the animal kind, as the Midrashim say, that even the animals had started acting immorally based on the climate of immorality in the world, then to ask, well, doesn't Nayak not know how to build a boat, is not an intellectual question, because if God wants to save Noah from a flood, and he wants to do it vis-a-vis -vis boat, do you really think the only thing stopping God from that occurring is that Nayak's not a good uh, shipmaster or shipbuilder? Right, so I guess an another way of, of framing what you're saying would be if God wanted to destroy the world with a flood and he wanted Nayak to build an ark, and then he's like, oh man, but civilization just doesn't know how to big build boats. Build big boats. Tough to say. I guess uh, I guess I'll have to do it some other way. Right. That That's kind of the, almost the premise of this question because if you're saying that Nayak's arc building abilities is gonna stop Hashem from carrying out his plan of flooding the world then you would have a question but obviously that seems to be a bit of a ridiculous 
premise to base a question off. Well, I have a, I have a better question once we're at that. Um, how did how did he want Moses to know to give over the whole Torah to the Jews when in that time people didn't have such vast knowledge of divine commandments? So it's funny you bring that up because there, there is an actual correlation between the two cases very specifically, which is actually brought up in the Medrash because uh, contrary to what these people who ask these questions on Torah believe, um, they're not the first people to come up with these questions. And the Medrash itself doesn't ask it as a question, but it tells over the story of Nayak building the, the Teva. And it says that Nayak did not know how to build the Teva. It was too difficult for him to build. And therefore, Hashem actually built it for him. So instead of asking the question, well, how did Nayak build the Teva? Wouldn't it have been really difficult? And therefore, Hashem could not have brought a flood and had him build the Teva. That's a bit ridiculous because if Hashem wanted to bring a flood and have Nayak build the Teva, Nayak not knowing how to build the Teva is one of the smallest impediments to Hashem's plan that one could possibly think. Okay, so if he doesn't know how to build it, Hashem will either teach him how to build it, show him how to build it, or build it for him. And I think this is also very clear from the psukim, the verses themselves. The the verses say that God picked Noah because he was the righteous man in generation. What's the chance that Noah was the most righteous man in generation and the greatest shipbuilder in his generation? Like, which one of those two requirements made him the one to have to build the boat? Was it he was most righteous or he was... Well, he was the most righteous, but guess what? He was the only one who could build that boat. Obviously, the building the boat is not the premise here. This is God trying to restart the morality of the world. He has one man who he trusts his morality in order to bring him to the new world. I'm pretty sure the imparting of the knowledge of building the boat was not the biggest problem here. Right, and we have a, we have a similar concept when it comes to Misha building the Menaira, where Misha also did not know how to build the Menaira, so he threw the gold into the fire and Hashem made it for him. So, you know, a similar question could be asked, well... Uh... You know, Hashem wanted to build a, a menorah in the tabernacle, but that couldn't have been because their gold, uh, what's it called, carving, melding skills weren't up to par. Yeah, obviously, if Hashem wanted a menorah in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, he would allow for Misha to be able to build it even beyond Misha's own skills. So, I mean, this kind of takes care of the next question, but I want to I want to just ask it. Um, the needs of the animals is the next question. How did Nayak take care of so many animals? Right, so again, it's it's literally the same thing, is assuming the premise is true, meaning assuming if there's no problem with the first part of the story, that God wants to restart the world, and he wants to use Noah, and he wants him to bring the animals so he can restart that world with the actual animals of the previous world, then again, will you think Hashem's going to be failed because Noah's not an extra, a, a expert zookeeper? That's what's going to hold God back? That's what's going to stop the plan? And a lot of times when these questions are asked, right, so it, it almost puts the religious person on the defensive, right? It's like, oh, well, I guess it was a miracle. Uh, yeah, that was also a miracle. It was miraculous. Uh, you know, God broke the laws of nature to, to make this happen. And, and it's like, okay, you have all these questions, and then oh, you're forced to say miracle. The premise of the story is Hashem wanted to bring a flood. And I, I know we're repeating ourselves, but this this point is going to travel through not just the entire Nayak story, but through almost every story in the Torah that gets questioned by by these these deniers of the Tyra. It's not unrealistic to say that there was a miracle involved in the saving of the animals to restart the planet. If anything, you can say, well, you know, why did God have to restart it? But once God wanted to restart, once Hashem wanted to restart the world and save all the animals, questions about the practicality of how he was able to do that are ridiculous. In fact, Rashi, uh, the one of the commentaries on the Chumash, on the Bible writes the opposite. He wants to know why God picks such a mechanistic way of doing it. 
if anything, God could have just, you know, snapped his fingers, so to speak, and it would just would have been done, right? We would have had a new world with Nayach. You know, there's no limits. God created a world something from nothing. So after that, there's literally no limits on what you can do. Um, and so it gives its answer why it went to a flood. But if anything, the question goes the other way. Why would God do it mechanistically? But there's no question that, that those mechanisms might include things that are supernatural. The question, though, is why didn't God just snap his fingers and do the whole thing? And that would have been the biggest scientific question. How is it that one second we have this world, and the next second we have a brand new world with a brand new people? I don't know. How is it that the world went from something to nothing? The same way. There's a God. And also, I think this is really where it comes down to, is that people think, like, there's the world, and then the Torah was given to address problems in the world. Like, first and first, first and foremost, there's a world. And then God came and decided to write a Torah, and then it has to, like, deal with the world. That's not the way it works. The whole point of the universe was God creating a mission place for his interaction with the Jewish people and mankind in general. The Torah is the blueprint for that interaction. It is what is governing Meaning, the ideas in Torah are the purpose of the existence of everything. You're only in this world so that you can interact with things that are spoken about in the Torah so you can come to a connection with God. That's the whole premise of this world. There's no other reason for the world outside of the world of Torah. So obviously, everything that happens in this world and that happens in Torah is not accidental or like, oh, well, nature doesn't work this way, so maybe I have to flip it around. This is the way God made a world and wanted to interact with it and humanity and he told us how we did in the Torah. It shouldn't match natural physics. That's not the premise of the entire book. And so to challenge a religious person who believes that that's not the premise of the book by saying, well, if, it's not, if it was the premise of the book, then it doesn't work with nature, no religious person holds the Torah should be working with nature. That's not a premise we hold. So if you want to challenge us, you have to challenge us on the premise. Explain to me why it's wrong for me to think that the Torah would not match a natural paradigm. Explain to me why God interacting with humanity shouldn't look supernatural when he does it overtly. I think the, the, the uh, responsibility to explain that would be on you. If you hold it's all natural, you explain to me why in the world would it be all natural when you're talking about God interacting with humanity in a way that he wants his presence known, his plans um, spelled out, and whatever he wants in the world to actually happen. Yeah, and I think one of my favorite parts about all these kind of questions that, that you'll find is that if you look in the Rishonim, right, so the Ramban asks a question. He says, how did all the animals fit onto the Teva? The Teva doesn't seem to be big enough to fit two of every animal, including seven of every big animal, uh, kosher animal. Which right? is also in this article, so apparently you needed, you know, nowadays in modern science we realize they can't fit. In the Ramban's time, so which that, is a thousand years ago, yeah. But is, is that the, the Ramban just says, okay, yeah, so obvi obviously it was a miracle. If Hashem wanted to save all the animals in a boat and the animals don't fit naturally, obviously it was a miracle. But this guy brings in, he brings in, they did a study that shows that if you take the animals and you figure out the average size and you multiply that by by the number of animals and then you multiply that by two and you figure there must have been this many species at that time, then it'll come out to figure that... It'll be too big for the boat. You really have to pretend you're so smart by, by writing out all these extra words. Is hey, the animals don't fit. Everybody knows that. Any right. child could figure I out. I was speaking that to my five, my six year old, and I asked him, um, how did all, I asked him, I asked him how all the animals fit in. The, or he asked me how all the animals fit in the boat, um, and I said it was a miracle, and he was fine. Like there wasn't like, uh, yeah, okay. So let me get to the next uh, flood of questions, which would be the geology 
um, you know, looking at the earth, why don't we have evidence of such a worldwide flood? How did the animals manage to get all over the world? How did people manage to get all over the world after the flood? Um, questions like that. So, you know, it, it should be a similar approach, but why don't you flush that out? Well, so the geology question is a little more interesting. Let's take for a premise fact that there is no evidence of a flood, of a mass flood. Now, again, I just want to stress, I don't know how you can conclusively say that because it's a miraculous event. So unless you have some sort of experiments that know how to measure the effects of miraculous rain and uh, and spring springs opening up and boiling hot sludge water going around, unless you know what that effect would be in a miracle, in a miraculous state of that water manifesting, you cannot tell me you don't have evidence for it. Because the world does look different, and they do use different explanations to explain why, you know, certain catastrophes, explain why certain parts of the world look a certain way. You can't tell me you know a thousand percent that this miraculous water flood should look like this. So that's first of all, that's out of the, you know, out of the gate. I don't buy that. But even if we assume the premise that there's no physical evidence of the flood, the Torah also is very clear about this. I'll give you two examples. So first of all, basically right after Adam leaves, I mean, uh, Noah leaves the ark, he plants a tree. It grows in a day and he drinks the wine from that tree in all in one day. Okay. Wait a minute. Doesn't wine take a little bit longer than one day <laughs> to make? And doesn't a plant take longer to grow? The point is we have to stay in the premise we're in. We're in a miraculous restart of the world. Now, if you ask any scientist, what would be the effects of water that goes over mountains is boiling hot? Okay, because again, these are all in the Midrashim, and the Midrashim are not coming to answer up any scientific questions. So again, we have to accept the premises given by the people who you're asking on. Okay, because unless your question is why it was the water boiling, you have to accept that maybe the water was boiling because that's the claim being made. So the water was boiling hot. It was more water than exists in the atmosphere because there's not enough water in the atmosphere, which is one of the questions they ask. There's not enough water in the atmosphere to cover all mountains, which is another like, well, where would God get all that water from? Okay, thank you. Um, and now the question is, does all that – okay, now if you ask any scientists, let's pretend the whole world was covered with boiling hot sludge-like water. That took off about a foot off the ground and turned human bones. Meaning it destroyed a foot of, a foot of, of the actual earth. Uprooted trees, flattened mountains. Oh, and by the way, there was massive change to the actual climate of the world. Stars were moved out of place. Okay, and... The world was uh, sent out of its alignment to create the world was, seasons. Right. The world was sent out of alignment to create seasons. And you're, and I ask a scientist, what sort of damage would that wreak on the world? I guarantee you the question would be, the answer would be, well, I don't know how anything would work after that because, you know, the world would be set in such a catastrophic uh, situation. So now, contrast that with the day after the flood, Nair comes out, replants trees, they grow, he drinks wine. Immediately, you understand that, again, God is trying to restart the world. If God wants to restart the world and erase the history or erase the existence of the men who sinned on earth at that time and not just the men but also the creatures and the creatures and he wants to restart the world do you think he now has to deal with a world that's been severely negatively impacted by his miraculous flood maybe yes maybe no maybe god did want the world now to be forever impacted by the flood and maybe we just don't know how to pick up on that evidence or maybe god wanted a fresh start with a new set of paradigms 
and the way to destroy it doesn't have any bearing on the world that's after. Because, again, he wants the world to continue, he just wants to destroy the previous state. Again, within the premises of the Torah, that's not ridiculous, that is more likely, it's more reasonable. If the only question is, but that's unnatural, that's not a question. So it's like it's also an, another question they ask, which is, how is it that we have animals all over the continent, all over the, or the earth, and they look so different? If all animals came from the same spot, shouldn't they look the same? And how do they all get all around the earth? Yeah, or, or like, why do the Australian animals only found in Australia and American animals only found in America, not found in Australia, and so on and so forth? So again, what's the premise? Is the premise the story? Because the story was God wanted to make all the animals in the earth survive. So he wanted the Australian kangaroos to survive. Nayakh is in the Middle East. So how is that kangaroo getting on the boat? God wants it on the boat, right? So that's the problem? He can't get the kangaroo there? God can't transport that kangaroo? No, he could. And just like he could transport it there, if he wants it back, it can go back. We're not talking about a natural story here, guys. We're talking about an unnatural reset to the world. So if God wants it to look a certain way afterwards, it's going to go back to that way. And the fact that you have to travel across an ocean is not a big hindrance to God. It's just not. And in fact, the verses say that God told Noah, he gave a bracha that the, uh, he gave a blessing that the animals and the humans should then re-spread around the earth. So that's what happened. They have to spell out every last miracle that existed or that occurred in order to get there. No, by telling us that it happened, and we see that it happened, we know it was a miracle, just like we know the split in the sea is a miracle. And this, uh, this is the example that I like to give is, is when the Torah tells us that Hashem stopped the sun in its place. So if you, if you go online, they'll ask all sorts of questions. But if the sun stopped, that would affect gravity and that would affect this. And then what about all the other constellations? And, and you know, uh, and, and if, the sun, if the sun stopped, then, then what, wouldn't this happen? It's like, what did you expect the tire to say? Hashem wanted the sun to stop. So he wanted the tire to say, and then Hashem stopped the sun. And in order to keep gravity flowing properly, he created a new vacuum in a different spot, which counteracted it and in order to keep the heat in the other place he allowed for more heat like you want 10,000 sukkim describing the miracle the pusik said hashem stopped the sun in his place and mind you would have to describe it in whatever scientific terms you're familiar with at any particular right, time in history right. it would also be impossible to do um no so and that's all how do you know anything's a miracle how do you know splitting the sea was a miracle because we know water doesn't stand on its own so nowadays we know more things so how do we know the animals going back was a miracle because we i mean they knew animals can swim through the ocean also but how do we know that the biodiversity is a miracle because we know how how long it takes for animals to to uh you know split up into different uh different species, species what about, what about uh, human diversity how would you explain human diversity well like genetic genetic human diversity so i would have been baffled except for the fact that right after the flood there's a famous story called the dispersion of people story in the tower of Babel. So if one is confused how there are different languages and different people with different cultures um, uh, all spread all around the earth, one would just have to look at the verses that that was also a miraculous event. And you would say that that would also explain their genetic diversity. So again, I, I'm not the whole genetic science is fairly new, and I'm not sure what assumptions they're running with. I'm going to just assume they're correct, that it is impossible naturally to get there. So yeah. Genetics is what makes people different. God wanted the world to look different. That's the whole purpose of the story, is that God wanted nations to have nothing to do with each other. He wanted distinct nations. In fact, in the end of Zosabracha, which is the the uh, one of the last parshas in the Torah, in the Bible, it talks about how God, uh, there's a Rashi brings that God split up the nations into 70 natures to represent the 70 souls that went down with Jacob, with Yaakov, into Egypt, into Mitzrayim. So that's unnatural. Again, nothing about the Torah is natural. 
It's setting up a unnatural paradigm for Jews to exist within a natural world and serve God. So anything to get to the exact paradigm that God wants. And it's not like a random paradigm. If you sit and study that paradigm, that's where all our ideas come from. That's what Torah is. You study the unnatural paradigm that God set up, and that's how you get tremendous ideas from. So that paradigm of making nations, we have a story where it looks like it happens, right? It said God unnaturally split the people. So did that include genetic split? I don't know. You tell me. If it's impossible for them to be genetically different like that, then yes, that's probably what it was. I don't I don't see the problem. So I guess the final stream of question would come from the different histories, um, archaeological evidence of histories as, as well as written histories from nations that seem to predate, at least in their accounts, predate the flood. Uh, so the question here would be, how could you have, let's say, Egypt telling a history that goes far beyond when the flood was supposed to happen if the flood was the beginning of i mean egypt started like 50 years or 100 years after the flood so that's the only question that's a good question because it doesn't rely like for me to say well it was a miracle god made up a fake history of egypt so they would think again like if that was stuck with that you know that's what it would be but but that doesn't fit the premise of of the flood story right but it's not naturally explained that way um so i think that's a a legitimate question. So you'd have to differentiate between two types of histories that span back. Because the basic question is, if I have a history that spans before the flood and continues concurrently without a flood, then the flood couldn't have impacted the entire world. Because if we died, we wouldn't have a concurrent history, I mean, a consecutive history. So you have to differentiate between two types of histories. One is contemporary recording, and the other one is a history book that spans back. If I right now today write a history book that spans back 40,000 years, and I just say a history of 40,000 years, and it happens to go through a flood, that's not a question. Because all that means is the right guy who wrote the history doesn't believe in the flood. And he made up kings beforehand, or even he was saying real kings beforehand, but he just wrote it consecutively so it looks like there's no flood. So a lot of the histories you look at that go past before the flood are written way later than the history. It's not like contemporary writing. It's not like a person at the time saying this was the year of the, you know, before the flood, and then this was the year right after the flood, and nobody mentioned any flood. There is a couple histories, or I think one really, that the, that has sort of contemporary uh, recordings of the existence of the civilization at the time, which is Egypt. And it's too long to get into now, but there are ways to look at Egyptian history um, and have it sh stop well short of when the flood happened. There's a book called Par Pharaoh by Alexander Huell, which does a really good job. There are a couple works that are academic works in Hebrew. Um, which uh, fix the Egyptian chronology um, and it, when they fix it for numerous other reasons that have nothing to do with the flood thing, um, it also comes out way before, meaning the, the Egyptian chronology does not span prior to the flood because, again, in the Bible, Egypt started after the flood. It was Mitzrayim, which is one of the sons of Ham, which came after Nayah. Uh, and by the way, if you look at those books, when they fix your chronology, it actually makes all the evidence for the Exodus. There's a lot of evidence for the Exodus archaeologically, and always the question is, but the timeline doesn't fit. When you look at those works where they fix the timeline for the flood, they also fix the timeline, and all those nice evidence pieces actually fall, fall right into place. So it answers another question people ask is, where's the evidence for the Exodus? There's actually a very large amount of archaeological evidence for the Exodus. Okay, so I think to round up and, and finish off this podcast, uh, my friend sent me a list of a bunch of questions on the flood, which we've dealt with, but then at the end he has the suggested answer and why they don't work section. So I just want to go through the, it was a miracle response, um, and get your thoughts. So the first question he asks on saying it was a miracle is that he seems to think that it answers the questions from the Ark, uh, questions from 
the animals, how the animals fit, how he's able to feed the animals, but he doesn't seem to think that it's able to answer the questions from the human perspective. In other words, like the chronology, which we discussed already, um, uh, the human diversity, which we have discussed and how we are able to answer it. But then he has one other question, which he adds in, he says, or the lack of corroborating stories from around the world. Um, so this is that if there was a worldwide flood, which restarted civilization and now we're starting civilization anew then every single uh civilization should have a flood story uh, so why don't you give us your thoughts on that on that last question particularly well i don't understand that premise why would every single civilization have a flood story uh if you follow the post-flood story that was really just one civilization they then were split miraculously around the earth um but what it had nothing to do with those specific new civilizations, meaning there are a lot of corroborating flood stories from all around the world. That's first of all, maybe not every civilization has one, but I think they're you can go on Wikipedia and look at uh, um, I think they're called flood myths or epic flood myths or ancient Near East flood myths, and there's a long list of different civilizations. Yeah, that there's happen. like there's like over 50, and they're not just even from the Middle East, they're from they're from America, um, South America. They're from the indigenous people of uh, Australia. There are indigenous people there. There's stories from all over the world. But even if there were only a couple, it, it would make sense anyways, because Nayakh and his family were the ones who started every generation after that. They would have had the flood story, which they do, after the people split all, up miraculously all over the land. It wasn't part of their new civilizations that they're starting's history. So... Maybe they would include a story of of the flood of the world. Maybe they wouldn't. I don't see why they would have to. I mean, the fact is a lot of them did, but I don't see why it's necessitive that a new um, generation, a new civilization would hold the flood story from a prior generation or a prior civilization. Right. I just want to uh, add in a point of irony. So in my research into the questions on the flood story, um, the heretics bring up a counter question, which is, why are there so many stories about a flood seemingly this is a very odd question but seemingly it just seems to be part of you know mythologies that when you're starting a civilization or whatever you you include a flood story in it so probably the next story was along this same path that they all kind of had this uh, universal idea let's make up a flood story so it's kind of interesting how they're able to ask the question on, on both ends uh, but it seems like both both of those questions are equally ridiculous. Let's move on to his second complaint against the miracle answer. He goes, second, that's a pretty strange thing for God to do. He deliberately hides this massive world-changing flood from all physical traces, but not from the biblical account or from Near Eastern mythology, and it's hidden in such a way as to only make a difference to modern geologists or zoologists. But for all people until very recently, and for the vast majority of religious people even nowadays, none of this huge global cover-up makes any difference whatsoever. So uh, why don't you why don't you take that question also? So first of all, this idea that that it's a cover up designed to only be discovered uh, by modern geologists. Um, I mean, most t periods of history, they didn't have the ability to try to reconstruct. I'm not sure we do either, um, but at least they didn't think they had the ability to reconstruct events from the far past. So I don't know if that would have to be included in in, in God's. A restoration project the calculation of which generation would have the scientific tools to be able to uncover this so i'm not sure where that question gets off the ground anyways but i think he's missing on a very uh important idea here um is that it's not it wasn't a cover-up 
It wasn't like God did a miracle and then wanted to hide it. The point is that God did not want to destroy the world in a way that would impact the post-flood generation. So when he says that this the cover-up didn't impact anybody, that's not true. It impacted Noah and all the people who left the boat because they were able to leave into a world that didn't just experience a traumatic mass casualty event. Meaning the ground was able to be planted on immediately. The water somehow disappeared, even though it was filled the entire earth higher than the tallest mountain. Where did all that water go? Where is it supposed to drain out into? That was also a miracle. So it's not true that the the erasing of the flood's impact wasn't felt by people before nowadays. It was felt by Nayakh. How much more was it felt? Was it felt 200 years later? I don't know. Maybe if, if the impacts of a flood would last 200 years, that it was physically felt 200 years later because the fact that they didn't have all those negative impacts would have been felt. At some point, the impacts wouldn't be felt, but I don't see why that's a question. Right. So just to, you're saying that because the purpose of the flood, and we, we've really talked about this a few times throughout this podcast, the purpose of the flood was to reset the world. So obviously the result of that would be a world which should not look and negatively affected as a huge flood would affect it. Um, we see that already in next time. And the fact that we're now figuring out ways of checking if there was a flood and realizing there's not, that doesn't mean Hashem was doing the cover-up for the people nowadays. There was no cover-up, and the people nowadays are only using that as evidence that there was no flood. And so Again, I think the most important point to stress is it was a supernatural water hitting the world for a supernatural event, for a supernatural purpose. It was not God made a flood, now we're going to have to deal with that. That's not how biblical stories operate. That's not how God's hand in nature has to operate. When God decided to reset the world, he can do it in whatever way he sees fit. If it's not irrational to assume he would have reset the world without negatively impacting it, then it's not hard for him to do, and it's not unreasonable to expect him to have done that. Yeah, fine. And then the third question is, he says, none of these miracles are mentioned anywhere in traditional sources. The only sort of exception is for the miracle of fitting all the species on the Ark, which Ramban mentions briefly. Now, this, again, uh, <laughs> this is just classic academics asking questions based on absolute ignorance of any traditional sources. We already mentioned the Medrash, which said that Nach didn't know how to build the Teva, and therefore Hashem had to build it for him. There's other Medrashim describing Nayach saying to Hashem, what, am I a trapper? I'm able to go out and get all these animals. And Hashem said, don't worry, I'm going to send all the animals to the Teva. Um, there's numerous Medrashim describing many of these miracles. The whole flood itself, the Medrashim described as miraculous, how it happened, and what opened up, how where the water came from. And even on the previous question, the fact that Nayach was able to build a vineyard immediately after leaving the Teva is also described in traditional sources as being miraculous. Thurimban himself is the one who asked where all the water went, and he suggested it was a miraculous drying up of the water. So it's just a classic academic ignorance leading to questions and hoping that their readers are as ignorant as them. They generally are. And again, as we pointed out, it's not missing from the sources if it's describing a supernatural event. We don't know it to be natural, and it's describing the event, then it's saying it's a miracle. Like I said, it doesn't say, hey, this is about to be a miracle, and then describe all the miraculous aspects. When, for example, when God split the sea, he didn't say all the laws of nature that would be currently being broken and all the different miracles that were part of that. Sometimes it will just say the event. If you know it to not work in nature, then you know it to be a miracle. So nowadays we know more things how it wouldn't work in nature. Okay, so we know more how it was a miracle. The Torah doesn't speak out every last miraculous aspect. It just says what happened. Whether or not it's a miracle is how well you know nature. You'll know if it's a miracle. 
And there's one last uh, distinction I want to make in, in that point that you're making now. Um, Wait, sorry, could I just bring a support for that? The Ramban didn't have a source that the animals couldn't fit, that it was a miracle how they fit. He just knew it to be true because if the Torah says all the animals went on and he knows they can't fit in a boat, then he knows the Torah is telling him it's a miracle. That's the way the Torah works. Right, and I want to make a distinction between two types of uh, questions that one can ask on the Chumash and the answers that could be given. So, for example, let, let's say, I've seen this question asked, so I'm just going to use it as an example, um, but let's say it says that Avram was riding on a donkey, and let's say the they think that there was no donkeys around at that time in that place. Camels. Right? Camels. Camels. There's no they camels at camels, that time. Yeah. Right. There were donkeys, there were no camels. Let's pretend there's, they, they think there's no camels. So then for me to say, well, the Torah says Avram was riding on a camel, so it must have been there was a miracle. Right. So that would obviously be a much weaker answer than what we're saying by the next story. Because the next story was, there's a clear reason why Shem wanted a flood. The whole event is being described as miraculous. So if you had to nitpick a, a detail here, well, what about that detail? He's doing miracles all over the place, but that detail is very difficult. So obviously, if Hashem wanted it to be done in that way, it could be done that way. But if the Torah is describing Avram on a camel, let's say, so unless the camel is like crucial to the story, to the point where I'd say, even if there's no camels out there, Hashem would want to miraculously provide him a camel, there would be a, it would be a weaker answer to say there was a miracle there than in this case. So I just want to make that distinction where sometimes it's a good answer to say, obviously, it's miraculous based on the context of the story. And sometimes it's much weaker to say it was a miracle based on the context of the story. So even within the Nile story, I can bring a little contrast with the Ramban himself, where with the rainbow, he asks, Hashem provides a rainbow as a sign that he's not going to destroy the world again. And the Ramban asks, but the rainbow is a natural phenomenon, which happens when you, you know, have light going through water, getting bent through water, it produces a rainbow. So what does it mean Hashem produces? So he said it was always there because it's a natural event, but Hashem is now using it as a sign because it's not clear from the context that Shem is creating the rainbow, so there's no need to posit a change in nature when there's no need to. But if there was, based on the context of the story, then obviously, as we see from the Ramban himself, just a few seconds earlier, says, of course, there's a miracle here. Well, other Rishonim actually on that rainbow actually say that nature was changed at that time. The nature of rainbows being created from water was changed at that time because they read the verses that it did seem like God was making a new uh, nature. But. Yeah, so even where that possibility is, is you're able to say it, and the Ramban, who we just saw, does say miraculous things by Nayach, is still uh, willing to try to avoid saying miracles when possible, um, based on how he understood the context. So just a takeaway from this podcast, because, you know, you're not always, we're not always going to have a podcast for every last question asked, but um, if you've if you've known a question, what's the phrase? If you've known a heretic's question, you've known all their questions. Um, they basically ask the same thing over and over again and just switch in different variables. You know one or two answers. It works for everything if you just use a little bit of intellect. So a couple of things you have to do is make sure the question's accurate, meaning they can say things that are not necessarily true. They'll say things that uh, they'll over-exaggerate scientists' ability to know things. Uh, so that's always, if you want, I mean, it takes a lot of work, but if you want, you can always look up the original study. Um, and see how much assumptions and how much guesswork is involved, because you'll be shocked at how much there is. Right. I was just reading that one of their big questions on the Tyra Bean from, from uh, Sinai was that they didn't have writing. Writing wasn't around then. And then they discovered previous writings. They discovered the Epics of Gilgamesh, which was, also, was, which was written, they believed, before then. So then they just immediately flipped the question, well, I guess there was writing. Must be the Torah was copied from that piece of Gilgamesh. Right. Also, with the camel question you asked, they found camels from that time period, and then they're you know the question just disappeared. So a lot of times, uh, you can just you have to understand how the science of archaeology works, and different scientific methods have their own flaws and assumptions. 
so that's first of all. Second, uh, what I like yeah. to say is there's one truth and infinite lies. That's for every uh, for every topic. Right, and then there's one truth and infinite questions you can ask. So that's that's first of all. Second of all, uh, don't be afraid to say it's a miracle. Our Tyra is miraculous. That's not an arguable point. The world was created for God to play out the play he wanted in the Torah, meaning. It's not like he made a world and then he had to fit a Torah to it. The world is perfectly tailored. The history of the world is perfectly ta tailored for the ideas and events that Torah is describing. So miracle is not a, a apologetic answer. Miracle is the primary answer because that is what is going on 99% of the time. Now, again, you have to use your seichel. You have to use your intellect a little to when to apply it, when to not apply it. I think a good rule is is if it fits the story and it fits the premise and it's not unreasonable that this is part of it, then you can go with miracle. If it's, as Mati said, a side point or it doesn't seem like it would have been a miracle, uh, then maybe you have to find different answers. But there is no problem of saying miracle because, again, the, we believe in the Torah. We believe that God gave the Torah and we believe God created the world and therefore can effectuate miracles. Also, and this is very key, is that 99% of questions they ask is asked by Arishain, even straight up in the Gemara, it could even be a Pasuk that they haven't read. So don't be shy about your own tradition. Use it. The answers are usually there. If not, you can always ask somebody who knows. Uh, it's not so complicated. The people asking the questions are not as intelligent as they seem. They may be using words you haven't heard of and pointing to sources you haven't heard of, but it's most likely because they haven't heard of them either. They heard of it from somebody else and nobody's read it. If you read it, usually the question resolves itself. All right. Thank you very much. This has been another edition of Jewish Thought Flow.